Hey, welcome. Good morning. Good to see everyone. Yeah, thank you for being here this morning. Thank, I trust that everyone had a wonderful Christmas day celebrating with family, celebrating with loved ones. And if you weren't here on Christmas Eve, you missed an epic celebration. Amen. Let's give thanks to the Lord for that time we had Christmas Eve, hearing about the greatest gift that we have ever received, that God sent his one and only son out of the overflow of his love. Generosity sprang forth from our God. And we are here today celebrating in that moment still. You know, if we were from a tradition of church that participated in the liturgical Christian calendar, today would mark the third day of what is known as Christmas Tide. You all are familiar with the 12 days of Christmas and the song. Today would be the epic day where you and I would be receiving three French hens, right? To go along with our two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah. Today marks the epic third day of Christmas tide. Christmas tide in the church tradition and the Christian theology marks that span between Christmas Day on the 25th and runs all the way up through January 5th. And I propose that no other year has it been better year to start celebrating Christmas tide here in Tombaugh Bayou City, where we continue to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ all the way up into Epiphany, January 5th, where every day we are marked by celebrating the grace and the goodness and the kindness of the gospel. Hey, if we haven't had an opportunity to meet, my name is Billy Shiel. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to walk through the scriptures with you today as we're on this side of Christmas Day. I'm excited about taking a look at what is one of the results, one of the most epic results that love came down at Christmas, is that out of that love, motivated by love, God gave us grace upon grace. So if you have your Bibles and a copy of the scripture, I want you to go ahead and go over to Titus chapter 2, that's in the New Testament where all the T's are there in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. The small little book, little letter from the Apostle Paul, written to a young church planner on the island of Crete. As Cretans have a reputation, they were like the biker club of humanity back then on the island of Crete. They were rowdy, they were rebels, they were in need of grace. And Paul landed on that island and he preached the gospel of grace. And people began to come to Jesus to repent and turn from their ways and come to a knowledge of the living God. And Paul eventually left, and he set Titus in charge of establishing leadership and pastoring in those churches. And so today I want us to look at, on this side of Christmas, the idea that love came down, and as a result, every day we get to experience the grace that God offers us in Jesus. Look with me here now in Titus chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 15 today. Thank you for joining us online. It's an amazing thing. It's a gift that we can be inside the internet together. It's such a weird thing, but God is good to us. I don't know how it all works, but it does. And we have amazing people that pull it off. So join with us this morning, verses 11 through 15. Paul writing, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, as we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this season of Christmas tide, this celebration that the greatest gift of all had come and broke in through the mess of this world and gave us a living hope, called us to himself, and now gives us the opportunity to live for you and for your name and for your glory with purpose and intention. And so we celebrate you today. It's with all of our heart. It's with all of our mind. It's with all of our strength that we desire, God, to love you, to serve others in your name. And so I pray, especially today, God, for those who are feeling anxious, those who are feeling under the weight of this extended season, God, of hardship and trial. And I pray for a particular measure of grace that, Holy Spirit, you would be with us, that you would be near, that your love that your compassion, that your hope, that your peace, that your joy would rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives today. And we ask all of this in the wonderful and in the beautiful mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. And everyone said, amen. This thread of grace, this grace that has appeared that Paul writes to Titus about really begins all the way back in the beginning of God's story in Genesis chapter 3 where the first gospel is preached after man has rebelled and sinned against God. God comes into the story and preaches the first gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this thread runs throughout your Old Testament into the great prophets of the Old Testament, all the way up into Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, this grace upon grace, and continues to move throughout the story of God's redemptive work all the way up into Matthew chapter 2, where so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and so forth, and Jesus Christ, the son of David, in that lineage is born. In Luke chapter 2, the great and most infamous Christmas story, we heard from it on Christmas Eve. And then into chapter 2 of Acts, where this grace of the gospel has spread from God's people all across from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, Tombaugh, the grace of the gospel has spread to us. And then in Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul expounds on this great treatise of gospel truth and what God has done theologically to make us his children, what God has accomplished to bring us into his family grace upon grace. And then today we land here on the island of Crete. The sun is beaming, the waves are crashing, and the gospel is moving forth because Paul came with the power of the gospel to preach the good news of Christ to those whom he met. And now Titus, this young pastor, is trying to figure out what am I going to do with a growing church of people? I'm all by myself. I have no idea. This stuff's all new to me. And Paul writes from the heart of a pastor to a young pastor, 
and says, hey, the, the message of grace is most adorned and most upheld when you live a life submitted to the goodness and the righteousness of King Jesus, that your life actually becomes a mouthpiece for the gospel to go forth. Look what he says here, that grace, in verse 11, the first thing we see is that grace has come to rescue us. Paul writes that the past grace of the birth of Jesus guarantees that we will receive the present grace that we daily need and the future grace that is our hope in this life and the life that is to come. How many of you know you need grace for this life daily? Amen? We need grace. 2020, if it hasn't taught us anything, has taught us how much we are not in control of this life. How much we depend upon the grace and the power of God's Holy Spirit to empower us to live a life pleasing to God. That's God's aim, that we would grow in godliness. Paul said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Everyone should be celebrating at this moment because salvation has come for all people. Grace has appeared in the form of Jesus Christ and now has rolled out to us today. See, grace is this unmerited, undeserved favor or mercy from God. It is, let me say it this way, the love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it. Not because of anything we have done to earn it. As parents, if you're a parent, I think you get this. If you've had a young child, days after giving birth to that child, you understand grace and you understand a love that's undeserved. They have done nothing. This child has done nothing to deserve any kind of love, any kind of affection. They haven't had any way to prove that they were loyal to us. Actually, they've done the opposite. They've peed their pants. They've cried all night. They've wet. They've pooped in their pants. They've caused us all kinds of pain. And yet our hearts are overwhelmed with love and mercy. This is the mercy and the grace that has come to us to rescue us. We're here today because of God's kingdom-expanding work through the gospel of grace. You and I. We live in a, in a world where meritocracy is kind of the mode. What do I mean by that? Where everything that we do, we put in an, an input, and then we get an outcome. Our effort, we can effort, we can train, we can discipline our bodies, we can discipline our minds, we can study we can work hard, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to earn something that we want. And that's a beautiful thing. God wants us to, to work hard and do things with excellence. But that is not the kingdom of God. That is not how we come into the family of God. We come into the family, Paul says, because we've been rescued by the grace of God. It was the, because God wanted us to be in his family, he gave us his favor and mercy. I don't think we can ever get over that. Especially when you wake up with yourself every day and you know your thoughts and you see your actions and you see the way that you live your life and yet God in his mercy continues to pursue us, continues to woo us, if you will, in closer that we may know his heart, that we may know that he is gentle and lowly of heart and that we too can become like that. 
See, at Christmas and in his life that he lived, Jesus ultimately made a way for persons from every nation, every tribe, every people group to be restored into a loving relationship with God. That's what Ephesians 2 teaches us. That's what Paul, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, teaches us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were spiritually unable to relate to God. We were following after the course and the pattern and the system and the rulers of this world. And but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, he made us alive together in Christ. See, it's by this grace that we have been saved. It's because this grace appeared that now we've been rescued. You understand we needed to be rescued, don't you? You understand who, first of all, we needed to be rescued from. We needed to be rescued from a holy, righteous God who demanded perfect obedience in every way and is worthy of worship with our lives. We were rescued by God's grace from God and now for God we live our lives. We were rescued from God, we were rescued from ourselves being in control. Who's let you down more than you in your life, right? From the beginning of the book in Genesis, Adam and Eve said, we got this, we know what we're doing. And they rebelled. And that's been the rhythm and the reflex of humanity ever since. God is good. He wants to give us good. But we choose to do it our own way. And yet, who's let us down more than us? But grace has come. Be encouraged, Paul says. Grace has come and grace flows to us every day. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. That means if there weren't grace in my life, I would be someone other than this. And we actually have a picture of what Paul was like before grace came and entered into his life. He was a murderer and persecutor of Christians. He was a hostile towards God. He was the equivalent of an ISIS general who was coming out, dragging Christians out of their homes, beating and murdering children and women because he hated the truth. He hated the God of the universe. But grace came to Paul on that road to Damascus. Paul had an encounter with the embodiment of grace. See, Paul lays it out here that grace brings salvation, but yes, grace also trains us how to live a life of godliness, how to live a life in this world. Look at it with me. In verse 12, it says, he's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Sorry about all the athletic illustrations. That's all I got. I used to be an athlete like a long time ago. Those years have passed, but now I get hurt in my sleep. Anybody resonate with that? Yeah. Yeah, I get hurt in my sleep. I don't know what happens, but that, that is something that astounds me. Anyway, uh, I used to be an athlete, and we, during the off-season of football, we had a, what was known as a strength and conditioning coach, and his name was Coach Hughes, and he was a beast of a man. He went to Rice. He played in the NFL. He was an amazing guy, loved the Lord, but he also loved working us to death. He loved putting us through 
a just horrific workout regime. And so he, each week during the off-season, we had a particular set of workouts that we had to do. It was strength and conditioning. And I remember he would come around when we began our workout in the, in the weightlifting portion, and he would sit and he would watch us and, and he would observe and let us do a set or two, and then he would say, hey, Sheil, back on the bench, you did that all wrong, you idiot. You were bowing your back and pushing off with your legs. That's not the point of this workout. This workout is for chest. This is not for your legs. That's why you're laying down on a bench. Here's how you're supposed to do it. Now you gotta do this again, those two sets over again now and do all three sets after you've already done the first two wrong. Of course, I was not appreciative of Coach Hughes at that moment in my life, right? But Coach Hughes had a goal in mind. He had an end in view. His end was that our bodies would be disciplined, trained, so that we would be able to perform at the highest level in the midst of our competition. See, that's what grace is. Grace is Coach Hughes. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't seem like in the moment that this is what we need or what even more what we want. But it's what God knows we need so that our spiritual strength, our spiritual energy can be strengthened for this day-to-day fight against spiritual principalities that we can war against. And so grace has come, Paul says, to train us, to strengthen and condition us for the life that we've been called to live. This life is no joke. 2020 has taught us that. This life is not all roses. It's not Pollyannish. This life is a difficult life. But we've been called to a faithful walk with Jesus. See, Paul says we cannot claim to be a recipient of saving grace without also being a student of training grace. See, grace has come to save us, and we're grateful for that, but grace has come to do more and more than just save us and set us apart now to live on our own. Grace has come actually to discipline us on the daily so that we can live a life pleasing to God. And one of the first things that grace does for us is that grace teaches us how to say no. Right? When our kids turn three, we understand what no is, right? No, 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 no. That's all they know how to say is no. But grace has come to teach us here, Paul says, to say no to ungodliness. The first thing that Paul wants us to to be trained in is to saying no to ungodliness. How many of you remember your life before you came into relationship with the grace through Jesus Christ? How many of you remember the way you lived your life? You brought a lot of ungodliness into your relationship with Jesus, didn't you? If you're like me, you brought a lot of self-centered selfishness, self-satisfying living, wanting to achieve things for yourself and motivated for your own glory. And Jesus came and humbled you by his amazing grace. And Paul says that that grace came to train you to say no to that former life has trained you to say no to the life that you used to live, the the life that did not consider God at all. That's really what ungodliness is. And its basic definition is a life that does not consider God at all. It's a life that is self-centered, a life that is motivated to please 
the desires and the passions of the flesh, to use other biblical language. And Paul says, the grace of God has come for you to renounce that way of living, to abandon that lifestyle so that you now can say no to ungodliness. And also the second thing that grace helps us to do is to say no to worldly passion. Worldly passion. What is Paul getting at when he says grace trains us to say no to worldly passions? It's this inordinate desire for and a preoccupation with the things of this world, of this life, such as just a few possessions, prestige, pleasure, or power. All of those things we rub up against and we have a taste of those. And if we get a taste of just one of those, it has an effect on us as humans. We live to be associated with certain people so that people will think more highly of us. We love to have power to be in positions where we are over people so that we feel like we are something. We use it as an identity. We love to have pleasure, right? If you think about pleasure, anything that God gave us that was pleasurable, he put amazing parameters to protect us from those pleasures, that knowing that we would wreck ourselves in overdoing it. God in his grace gives us parameters for those, but it trains us. Paul says, grace has come in the gospel of Jesus, and you've been indwelled by the spirit of the living God to renounce ungodliness and to say no to these worldly passions. 1 Corinthians 7.31, Paul tells us that the world as we know it is passing away. Say, don't get caught up with this world. Don't get caught up with living for this system. This is passing away in the blink of an eye. We will live and breathe and exist, and then we will be gone from this life. We will exist forever. And it's passing away. Another early apostle, Peter, He said it this way to his young church. He said, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. It's those sinful desires, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the pride in possessions. Abstain from these things. And so grace teaches its recipients to say no to sin and to say yes to the things of God and the words and the will and the ways of Jesus How does this happen in our lives on the daily, right? God uses people, ordinary people like you and me on the daily to encourage and be ambassadors of grace, to be instruments of grace, to be those who encourage one another. That's why we have a community called the Ecclesia, those who are called out by God, the church of God. That's why the church exists for us to encourage, to equip, to empower to live the life that Jesus wants. See, we need each other. We were made for community. And God uses us. God uses pastors. He uses other mature believers in our lives as his agents along with various other means, his word and the Holy Spirit, and then circumstances that we encounter in our lives. He knows exactly how to tailor our lives so that this grace can have its full effect into making us more like his son. Oh, what a wisdom. Oh, what love. 
Oh, what intimacy that God would come to us, save us, and then discipline us as a loving father to train us in righteousness so that we can be a people for his own possession, a people that live for him, that shine forth his love and grace. I remember in my own life, I had an experience that is profound and has changed the trajectory of a certain area of my life years ago. In my 20s, I was very undisciplined um, in an area of involving my personal finances where I, man, if I wanted it, I went after it. And if I thought this was a good idea, I put my money and my energy and everything into it. And it led to a really bad place financially for me and my family. And, I, and God had me in a place at the time where I was feeling the call to Christian uh, vocational ministry as a pastor and he had me under the, the leadership of another pastor who was just much more advanced and wise in, in his experience. And we began talking about personal things. And he began asking about my personal finance. And man, I just remember having to think through that in those moments and the pressure and the anxiety and just the shame that I felt because of my inability to do what was wise and what was good. And this pastor friend, he, he came to me in the grace of God and he said, brother, you're gonna need to establish a plan to get these things in order. And he came to me with a discipline and a plan and he said, you need to start working on this. You need to start working. And he asked me to do some very difficult and by the world's standards, embarrassing things for a grown man in his late 20s embarrassing to me to, to have to admit to these things and yet called to give up some of the things like move out of my home, give up, sell my vehicle, move into another home with another family for a season. These were, this was embarrassing to me, right? Because I thought I had it all together. And yet the discipline of grace came to me so that I could learn to say no to worldly passion. I could say yes to what God wanted, to steward what God had given me, saying no to the things that were pulling at my desires. And it was the grace of God to me. And now, some 15 years later, I continue to see the evidence of God's grace in that. See, grace trains us to say no, but also Paul teaches us today that grace trains us to say yes, right? Paul says Say yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If we summarize Paul of Paul's ethical teaching, everything that Paul taught Christians and what Christians should look like, even if you go back to Titus verses 1 through 10, he's teaching what a Christian life should look like for different ages and different people groups there, how they should be living. All of his teaching can be summarized as putting off and putting on. It's stepping out of the old man, stepping into the new man, taking the things that we used to do and putting those away and abandoning those and then stepping into the grace and the goodness of what God has for you to do by obedience and faith. See, Paul says saying no to putting off, saying yes to putting on. 
Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, you can look those up later. Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 17, really gives a great detailed description of how we can put off and put on. But Paul's primary concern here in Crete and for Titus as a young pastor is that the witness of the lives of these who are claiming to be followers of Jesus was going to be in jeopardy because they were not saying no to worldly passions. They were not saying no to the previous life of ungodliness. They were giving themselves over while also saying that they were followers of Jesus. And if there's anything that we know about being a follower of Jesus that's most damning to the name and the renown and the message of the gospels when Christians say one thing yet do another thing. Yet say we love Jesus with our mouth but our lives are lived and ungodliness without regard for God and his ways. And we've all done that. But when God has called us to live a life that would resonate with grace, would resonate with goodness, with kindness, with joy and with peace, and that we would be known most of all by our love, our love for the Father and our love for our neighbors and one another. Paul says, we need to say yes to self-controlled living. How many of you know that self-control is one of those fruits of the Spirit that is the most difficult, I think, to see come to? Maybe you're not like me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe I need more self-control. But man, I lack self-control in areas of my life. And then in other areas, I see where God's grace is working. But Paul says we need to, we need to live self-controlled lives, right? If you were in my home this week, and while my wife was baking, you could see that I lacked self-control. So much so that I said, get this stuff out of the house. Go give it to the neighbors, please. Because I don't need to gain COVID-19, you know. Self-control, that's something that deals with our personal holiness, right? You know that God is most concerned with us becoming holy, becoming righteous. He's concerned more about our holiness than our happiness. You've heard that. And so self-control has to do with our personal holiness. Upright living has to do with how we live in these horizontal relationships, how we love one another, how we love our neighbors as Christ commanded us. And finally, godly lives, how we live in this vertical relationship with God, that we would love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Paul says we need to say yes to these things. Well, easy for Paul to say that. But guess why Paul is able to say that? Because Paul knows that the same Spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is now at work in you and me, Christian. He's working in us to complete the work that God began in the saving, now in the disciplining of his grace over a lifetime that we would one day be able to say at the end of our days, God, it's all you, you've done it all, and my life has been all of grace. That we could be like Enoch on our tombstone. It says, walked with God and then was no more. Amen. That God would do that. And that's Paul's desire, that we would live lives. And as your pastors, that's our desire. That you would live a life, aligning your life with the life of Christ. 
obedient to the things of God. See, too many of us grew up thinking that a relationship with Jesus was all about what we could not do and shouldn't do, right? A relationship was about keeping a list of rules and prohibitions like don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, and certainly don't go to places where they do all of those things, right? While that is good counsel, I think it's biblical wisdom, the the crux of the matter in Christianity is about transformation of the heart, a transformed life. That's what Jesus came to do and gave us a spirit to accomplish. And Paul says that he, all of these things should be done in this present age. That's not us looking forward to that by and by, pie in the sky, heaven life, escapist mentality. No, that's a call to the here and now to live a life pleasing to God. Yeah, man, but God, you, you just don't know my wife. You don't know my kids, man. I can't live godly and be in that house, right? This is, this is how we preach to ourselves. This is how we tell ourselves, justifying the way that we, we live. Man, you don't know my neighbors, my neighbors, those dogs, they just bark all through the night. I can't sleep. I, I fed that dog a piece of meat that was, might have, may or may not have had some antifreeze on it. I don't know. That was theoretical, just so you know, those watching, don't, don't at me and don't send me your emails, anybody. I saw it in a movie once. It's in this present age that God wants us to live, right? Because this is the, this is the only life we have. This is the only life that God's given us to be a light, to be the expression of his love and his kindness. And so Paul says, hey, you can do it in this present age. I want to read this quote to you from theologian John Calvin. He says it this way, when we don't live our lives before the world in a way that honors God, he says it like this. He says, everything bad they, the ungodly, can seize hold of in our life is twisted maliciously against Christ and his teaching. The result is that by our fault, God's sacred name is exposed to insult. And the more closely we see ourselves being watched by our enemies, the more intent we should be to avoid their slanders so that their ill will strengthens us in our desire to do well. So we should be strengthened by one another, strengthened by the grace that we have received in the gospel, strengthened to do well. Finally, in beginning in verse 13 and running through the end of this section, Paul says that grace has come to energize us for good works. Grace has come in the form of the gospel to energize us for good works. That's what our lives are to be about, the good works that Christ has called us to. See, waiting for our blessed hope, he says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a blessed hope. Hope does not put us to shame, right? This hope in Jesus. I've said this many times before, but if you're hoping in anything that can be taken away, it's not a true hope. If you're hoping in your current financial state, if you're hoping in your profession, if you're hoping in your health, if you're hoping in your outward appearance, 
Just wait a few years, it'll all change. If you're hoping in your relationships with those people in the world, if you're hoping in anything other than Jesus, it can be and will be taken away at some point. And what happens when what you're hoping in for in this life is taken away? See, the only thing that can never be taken away because he was and he is and he is to come is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul says, our blessed hope, that is a blessed hope. That means that hope is secure and sealed in heaven for us. And Paul says, this life is all about waiting by the grace of God for that blessed hope to appear. Right, this blessed hope came in a humble estate in Luke chapter two. And he's coming again in Revelation in his glorified, manifest, amazing, powerful, authoritarian state with king of kings and lord of lords tattooed on his thighs, this general leading his people to rule and reign forever. That's the blessed hope that we have, the hope that helps us for today and for tomorrow. And Paul says that we're hoping in Christ, Jesus' second coming is really gonna hope, help make our hope eternal. Because Jesus gave himself up for us, Paul said, to redeem us. That's a word that means to just buy us back from being slaves, this connotation of being enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to sin. You understand that. We were unable to do anything to please God, but God and his grace bought us back. Jesus bought us for the purposes of making us into a people for his own possession. Jesus wanted us for his own possession that we would be his people advancing his purposes in the earth. That's why we exist, that Jesus would buy us back from the lie of Satan and sin and death, that we would be a people for his own possession who are, get this, zealous for good works. We are eager to do good things. See, Jesus went to the cross to push back against sin and Satan and darkness and all the things that come against the kingdom of God so that we could step into the power of the gospel to live a resurrected life, a life that is zealous for good works. We're called, Ephesians 2 says, to good works that God has prepared beforehand. God's already rolled out the red carpet and we just need to walk into the works that he's prepared for us. What do those good works include? Anything that God says is good, right? See, some of us are still living in this ungodly state where we have no attention to God throughout our week and yet we show up to Sunday expecting that to be a good work, that God would count somehow our Sunday attendance as a good work. It's great to be here. We want you here. It's important. The body of Christ is necessary. But these good works are not for our salvation. They're for the grace of God to continue to move out to people who don't have the grace of God in their lives. 
And that's what you've been called to. That's what our hope is here in Tomball, is that we would extend the grace of God to all of those whom God has called us to be ambassadors of mercy and grace to. These are good things. This is the way that we've been called to live. And the gospel is the basis, Paul says, for the way that we are to live our lives. We've been given much, so much is required of us to give. We live our lives like this, and we extend those good things. We help those who are in need. We may pick up someone and give them a ride when they need to go to a doctor's appointment. Whatever God gives you to do, do it with all your might, knowing that God will use it. Fish and loaves, right? That's all we have. God multiplies it for his glory. How many of us are living our lives in a way that it demands a gospel explanation? That the only way to explain the way that we're living is through the power of the gospel of Jesus. That the only way to explain how we live is because we have been radically transformed by the power of God's grace in Jesus. I want to read this quote from Jerry Bridges. He says it this way, therefore, as believers, we should seek to be exemplary in every aspect of our lives, doing our best for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Our work, our play, our driving, our shopping should all be done with a view that not only will unbelievers have nothing bad to say, but on the contrary, they will be attracted to the gospel that they see at work in our lives. People should be attracted to you because of the gospel of grace that is working in your life. The Holy Spirit making you attractive because of the aroma of Jesus that is around you and your life. And so we, fellow brother and sister, as Paul or the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, 24, consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. You notice he includes the motivation for the good deeds, right? Love. Love has to motivate. Love has to be what's driving our good deeds. That's the way that we know that our deeds are good, is that they're motivated by God's love through us. Martin Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Isn't that so true? Good works are that which we were made to do. Good works are the only reasonable response to a God who has given us everything in Christ. And we can now give our lives devoted to do these good things. I'm going to brag on my wife because it's easy to do, number one. And she's the, the closest thing that I know to someone who is most like Jesus. And her life story is wrapped up in the grace of God. She considers others more important than herself. Romans 12, 10. She lives a life to desiring to show love and affection to those who are hurting, those who are around her. I've been a beneficiary of that for 25 years plus. But God's grace entered her life. Now she will bake, she will 
buy things. She will create things because she wants people to feel loved and seen. And she did this recently, Christmas time, our neighbors, and it has it inspired our neighbors to then do the same thing. And this is what the grace of God does in our lives is it empowers us to do things that are beyond just our own human natural desire. And in one of the most spectacular examples of grace is her service to her father. Talk about a man who does not deserve one ounce of love by worldly definitions and by even worldly perspectives. This man abandoned his children at a young age, pursuing his own life, left them single mom, three girls, desired to live a life of hedonism, pursuing his own selfishness out of her life from the time she was six years old. Shows up when she was 18. She was ready to graduate high school. Introduces himself back into her life. All of the hurt, all of the pain that was caused because he left, everything that happened. And now, having a stroke, lived a life of hardship, unable to basically communicate. His daughter, whom he abandoned, now drives over to him and his wife and serves them because they are incapacitated and goes to Walmart and spends six and a half hours walking through Walmart trying to help him get the things that he needs. That's the grace of God. I don't say that to brag on my wife. I say that because God's grace is effective to work through us. This is what God came for. This is that that has been a result of Jesus coming at Christmas. That we could experience the grace and love of a father. I'm going to close with this from Paul Tripp. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we also need to reflect on the violence of grace. What do I mean? Jesus came to decimate our self-oriented kingdoms of one so that he could welcome us to his glorious kingdom of wisdom, grace, and love. Grace destroys so that it can rescue. Grace destroys so that he can bless us with something much, much better. Grace destroys what has held us in bondage and frees us to live, love, and serve one greater than ourselves. Jesus came to endure a violent death so that in the violence of grace, he could free us from the kingdom of self and transport us to his kingdom of life and light that will never, ever end. That's a story worth celebrating. That's the story that we have because of Jesus. And if you don't have that story today and you're looking for this grace in your life. Say yes to Jesus today. Let someone around you know, we're gonna pray here in a minute, respond to the grace of God that is available for you today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your overwhelming kindness, the undeserved 
relationship and intimacy with you and an opportunity now to live out that in this life. So help us, God. We have all fallen short of your glory. We have all not done what you've asked. And so your grace covers a multitude of all of our sins, God, your love working. And so we ask today that you would stir our hearts, stir our affections by your love. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, we need you. Without you, we have no hope to be who you've called us to be. So Holy Spirit of God, stir us up, energize us by your grace and the goodness of your gospel that we may be those who love you and love others. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.